G'day, I'm Ollie Laleve and welcome to GRDC In Conversation. This series is a GRDC investment that takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry. Uncovering their journeys, learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're covering Southern Australia's grain growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates and just about everyone in between. For more than three decades, Jenny Davidson has been involved in the Australian grains industry. As a pulse pathologist, she has witnessed enormous change in the South Australian pulse industry. Her work has included authoring and co-authoring some 50 scientific papers. Technically, she's retired, but I think we're going to uncover a little bit more about that shortly. Jenny, over, over more than three decades, you've been involved in the Australian grains industry. As a pulse pulse pathologist, uh, you've witnessed enormous change, particularly in the South Australian industry. Your work's included authoring and co-authoring some 50 different scientific papers. And one thing I'm excited to chat to you about is this technical retirement, which you've entered. Uh, but I, I think we might be uncovering a little bit more about that, Jenny, but welcome to the GRDC In Conversation podcast. Thank you, Ollie. It's nice to be here. Now, I think probably a, a good place to start is this retirement, but you're still doing bits and pieces. So what have you been up to over the last few weeks in this retired uh, life, if we call it that? Yes, it is a little bit retired in inverted commas. So um, I left uh, Saudi where I was working for many years. I left them um, at the end of last year. But um, I picked up a small position, let's call it small, with the South Australian Grains Industry Trust, so SAGET. And my role with SAGET is, is the research um, officer. And uh, what that role entails is um, sort of interpreting the science that comes through the um, projects that SAGET fund, because SAGET is a, um, it's a research levy that the South Australian farmers um, provide. And then there's money there that researchers can apply for to do some small projects. And so um, we do a lot of work going out looking at the research that's being done because most of it's in the field um, and it's all over the cropping area of South Australia. So springtime for me has become a really quite a busy time. Um, we travel from one end of the state to the other, looking at all the different trials that people are putting in. Um, sometimes it's not trial work. Sometimes we're in laboratories or glass houses where people are running different experiments. So, uh, yeah, so I'd say the last six weeks has been pretty full on, going from one end of the, the state to the other. For those who know South Australia, I've been right out on, on the western side of the cropping area and then right down to the southeast. So we've sort of gone from one end to the other of the cropping area of South Australia. And we're recording this in the last week of September, so I feel like spring has well and truly sprung. But how are things looking out there on the ground with the various trials, but just even as you're driving along the, the grain-growing areas? Oh, look, it's been fantastic. It's just been one of those seasons that it started off a little bit difficult, but um, with this La Nina that has um, come into Australia and certainly South Australia is getting this extended spring, 
And everywhere we go, the crops are looking fantastic. I think probably the best we would have seen for something like 10 years. And so there's a lot of optimism out there in terms of what potentially could happen with the harvest. Now, we've all got to keep our fingers crossed that, of course, that um, the rain actually does stop at the appropriate time so that the harvest can come off. But at the moment, the potential is looking really good. And, of course, that, that translates then into the research trial that we've um, been looking at as well, that they also are, are looking really good and uh, hopefully we'll be able to get a lot of data out of them this year. Well, our fingers are certainly crossed for everyone. It's such an important couple of months. I think the first part of it, the, the rain has come and now, yeah, we just need that tap to turn off just at the right time for long enough for people Absolutely. to be able to get it in the bin. Yep, that's exactly right, yep. Now, Jenny, I'd love to step back and we do this with all the different guests we're having on the podcast, but whereabouts did you grow up and have you always been involved and in around agriculture? Well, I have, yeah, because I grew up on a, on a farm. Um, my parents' property is down at Strathalban, which is these days almost on the edge of the Adelaide suburbs. But it, when I was growing up, it, it was very, very rural. And so it was a mixed cropping farm, um, lots of crops, but also a lot of livestock, um, beef and sheep as well. So, uh, yeah, I grew up on that property. Um, and uh, my brothers are still farming that, that particular land as well. So we have that ongoing connection uh, with that farm. But I sort of got interested in um, studying agriculture, not, not so much doing the farming, but, but studying the science behind it. Because when I was a teenager, there was a researcher, the Adelaide University had a uh, barley breeding program at that time. And, um, and the barley breeder actually had his trials on my father's property. So that sort of piqued my interest in what was this about, what was he doing and why was he doing it? And um, so from there I thought, you know, I think this agricultural science idea might be a really interesting pathway to follow. And was it a really logical path to go down or were there many people that you could actually talk to and see aside from this uh, plant breeder that was doing the work on your father's property or, or, or was it quite a unique little area? I guess for me there weren't a lot of other people working in that space. I, I knew some people that um, had studied ag science but perhaps had taken a slightly different pathway in their career, not so much into the grains industry but into other industries. So um, I think it was just that I, I knew that I liked science. That was something I got from my school background, that science was something I really enjoyed because I always wanted to know why. Why is something happening? And burrow down into that, that question as to what was going on. Um, I guess as a school, school student, though, I thought, well, wh where do you go in science? It's such a broad area. And then it was meeting the plant breeder that twigged with me, ah, agricultural science, I can understand that. Because growing up on the farm, seeing the crops being grown, putting those two ideas together is something that I understood as a school student that, oh, okay, there's a career pathway that I actually get and it would mean something to me. So in that sense, it took me a little while to work through it, but um, once it twigged, I went, yeah, absolutely, this is, this is the area for me to move into. 
And was there any other career options on the table for you at this stage or was it absolutely going to university, studying agriculture science, then moving out into the, the well, big it was, wide world? It was absolutely, yeah, it was absolutely going to university. There was no question that I wouldn't be going to university. Um, the only other concept I tossed up was medicine, but then I think I'm not really patient enough with people complaining to me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that may not be a good career pathway to go <laughs> Medicine's loss I is definitely agriculture's gain. <laughs> well, this is, the, the interesting thing is that, that in my career, as you said earlier, I, I ended up as a plant pathologist, so I was dealing with sick plants instead of sick people. And my sick plants don't complain. And when they die, I just chuck them in the bin. So it sort of probably suited my personality a little bit better. And maybe slightly less time critical as well, Jenny. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> so this plant breeder that was doing the work um, at your parents' farm, Dr. David Sparrow, how much of an influence did he have on you? Were you, were you able to use him as a mentor um, yeah. when you were looking at those options? Definitely, yes. So able to have some discussions with him and, and work out where I was heading. And then when I actually started university, because he was in the uni, in the ag science area, he was actually lecturing to the students as well. So in my final year of uni, I actually selected plant breeding as the area that I was going to go into. I had decided that, that's, that plant breeding was for me. And, and David Sparrow was one of the main lecturers for that particular course. And so we had a lot of interaction um, and I did a little project with David in that final year of uni. But um, the interesting thing was we had to pick two main subjects in that final year. So I spoke to David and said, look, what's a really good match with plant breeding? What, what would sit, sit nicely, another subject that sits nicely against plant breeding? And he said plant pathology. And, and that was just sort of where everything changed because I did both of those subjects in my final year at uni and plant pathology is what I've gone into and, and I absolutely love it. So it was just that that interesting sort of suggestion, hey, put this as a something that will help you in plant breeding, but it ended up being the area that um, I have spent all my time in. It's incredible. Can we can we jump back and for my benefit, but hopefully also the audience, hopefully people are at the same level as me. Are you able to just run through what is a plant breeder and the role of it? But then also to what is a plant pathologist and <laughs> What's the role that plant pathologists play? Sure. So a plant breeder is someone who does all the genetics on um, different crops or they'll, they'll be working on a particular crop and they're doing crossing so that they're trying to get new traits into a variety and they're producing new varieties, hopefully with better yield, hopefully with disease resistance, hopefully with all sorts of other attributes that the industry needs, not just the farmers, but the, the industry that's using the product that the farmers are growing. So the plant breed is trying to get all the best qualities, including um, yield into varieties for the industry. So a plant pathologist is um, focuses purely on plant disease. And one of the main parts of controlling plant disease is to get resistance into the varieties. And so through the genetics, you can actually, with many diseases, you can actually identify resistance genes. 
And so this is where a plant pathologist can work closely with a plant breeder. And so you get the, the pathologist will be working on infecting plants, identifying, sometimes doing the molecular work themselves, identifying what the genes are. Then that information goes over to the breeder to say, hey, if, if you use this set of genes, you're going to get resistance against particular um, diseases. And so it is actually a really good match to be able to work together. Now, there are lots of other, there are other ways in which a pathologist can be looking at controlling plant disease. And some of it is through chemical um, applications and understanding which chemicals to use and when to use them. Some of it is also around crop management. You can change your sowing date or you can change your rotations or you can change your tillage, change all sorts of things in a crop that will reduce the amount of disease sitting in those crops. So there's a whole sort of suite of areas that a plant pathologist can be working in. And so from, from finishing studies and going into the workforce, what were the options that were in front of you? And, and was there one particular area which you kind of jumped at and thought, that's where I want to go straight up? Well, it kind of just, things sort of fell in my lap a little bit. I mean, ag science, I'm not sure what it's now like now, but ag science at Adelaide Uni back 30, 40 years ago, you had a small cohort of students. You're based out of the weight Institute, which the, the students are still obviously out of the weight Institute. So you get this very personal relationship with the researchers in the university and um, also whoever else happens to be on campus. So having graduated, I got, first of all, offered a position as a research assistant in the farmer bean breeding program. Um, so that was sort of a one-year role to sort of learn the ropes and learn what was involved in um, running a research project, you know, sort of working alongside the breeder and actually dealing with a lot of the data because research is quite often about data and churning through lots of it and analysing it. So I spent a year doing that. Um, and at the end of that, I picked up, and again, another position kind of fell in my lap that... I was told that um, there's a position for a research officer in plant pathology available with the Department of Ag, and I should go and talk to this particular person who was also on campus. So you can see that campus thing is just sort of working really well. So I popped up there and, and said, hello, I'm Jenny. I got told to come and see you. And they described the job and said, um, when can you start? And I said, Monday. And away we went. So <laughs> you just, you wouldn't be able to do that these days, you know, the, the paperwork involved in employing people. But um, back then things were a bit simpler. And so I just was able to very comfortably move into these research positions as a junior scientist and got fantastic mentorship from, from the senior scientists, experienced people who were already there. So... Um, so both of those positions, the second position was based around um, Bali again. So again, working closely with David Sparrow, but focusing more on the diseases that were impacting on the Bali crops. So as I said earlier, it, it was around that relationship between pathologist and breeder where my job in that, that instance was to try and investigate the, um, the resistance of different germplasm coming through the barley breeding program. Um, so, yeah, like it was a really, it was a three-year position and, and I learned an enormous amount in that period. 
And in terms of nearly specialising in the pulse area, when did that start to eventuate? So that started um, after the role with the barley work that I'd done. I actually left the department at that point to have a family. So I spent about five or six years out of the research workforce. I was doing other things in between children. Um, But um, once my youngest child started school, I I actually saw a position advertised in in for for Saudi. Saudi at that point was a new organisation. It was before that it was called the Department of Agriculture and then Saudi was created within Persa and so that cohort of people I'd been working with in the Department of Ag on the Bali project, that cohort evolved into Saudi that we know today. And so a position was that was advertised for looking at diseases in field peas based in Saudi. When I put my hand up, you know, I applied for it, it turned out it was the same cohort of people that I had been working with um, when I was working on the barley diseases. So it was really great to be able to walk back in there and know the people and, and get straight back into the research. So that's that's where the pulse pathology bit started. It was sort of the late 90s, I think, um, initially working on field pea, but then expanding out to lentil, chickpea and faba bean as well. And in, in terms of the, the decision, like when you, you obviously met your husband, started to have a family. Did, did you start to think that maybe at times you were leaving that scientific career behind or was it always just going to be um, let's park it for a little bit and come back uh, at a later date? Yeah, I think, look, it, it was not an easy thing to do because at that period of time, things like childcare and, you know, working mothers, it was still a new thing. And, like, I wasn't right at the forefront of the, of all of breaking down those barriers. I think women perhaps 10 years older than, than myself were the ones who really broke down a lot of those barriers. But at the same time, um, we were living out on the farm and the research really happens within city environments, certainly in, in South Australia or certainly back then, based at the Wade Institute. So having that distance between the farm and and the location of the research, yeah, it was kind of difficult and trying to work out how this was all going to work was um, not an easy thing. I mean, I always knew that somehow I was going to get back into the workforce um, or back into research, but I, it wasn't that I had a clear plan about how that was going to happen because, as I said, you just didn't have the support structures that perhaps people, families have today. And so you're sort of making it up on the run as you went. Um, I guess one of the differences that I find today is that there's a lot of pressure on young mums to get back to work when the baby turns one. Well, I didn't have any of that. It was more that I I was able to stay home until my kids were all at school and then go, okay, let's now work out how I'm going to get back into the workforce. Um, And I think that was perhaps a little bit less pressure because it was me putting the pressure on, not society. It was purely my decision to do that. And I think that sort of makes things a little bit easier. Um, having said that, though, it, it wasn't an easy thing to do because the farm is 
um, it takes an hour to drive from the farm to the Wake campus. So um, I was doing that backwards and forwards every day for, for many years. And um, the kids and my husband are back on the farm. So it, it was certainly a really big juggling act to make all that work. Oh, it's a huge amount of commuting. And the days mm. before remote working was the norm. Um, oh. And as you said, like you've, you've got to be in the lab uh, where the work's actually happening. Did During that time. Absolutely. Yeah. During the time where you, like your kids were obviously heading off to school. What's the speed of change like in the industry? Like how how quickly did things shift or change from the time that you took a bit of a break and then came back into the workforce? I don't think at that period, I don't think it was huge because computers were um, still sort of evolving in that period. So when I was first of all working um, straight out of uni, you had a server based out of the weight which talked to the computer in the Adelaide Uni on North, North Terrace, but not everyone had an individual computer. And then that hadn't changed a lot when I came back from, um, from having my kids. What had changed, I guess, because we're talking sort of almost ancient history here, is that <laughs> when, I, when I first um, started working, the um, computer systems were still using the card system. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but you had punch cards to um, set up your programs and your punch cards had to go into the computer and that's what ran your program to analyse your data. Huh. So, yeah, so by the time I came back from having kids, the punch card system no longer was required and you actually wrote your um, program directly into the terminal itself. So that was sort of the change and I think the rapid change in technology was after that. So I actually didn't, I wasn't very much behind when I, you know, I'd been that five years out of the research and really a lot of things had not changed. But if you look back now, it's been enormous change that's gone on. Yeah, and, and so what are some of those changes that you, you've seen? And we can zero in on pulses if that's kind of the specific area. Or, yeah, what have well, been some in, of those changes? Well, in science in general, ag science in general, that we've been seeing up at Saudi, I think it's um, the molecular side of things is what's been absolutely huge changes and, and the progress in understanding the molecular work and where it fits and what can be achieved. I mean, I didn't do a lot of the molecular stuff myself, but but all the people working in that area were just down the corridor from me. So, you know, I got to the point where, okay, we've got to bring some of this molecular work into what we were doing in our lab. Um, and so I just go to those people who have that skill set and say, hey, I need a molecular test to do X, Y, or Z. Can we work on developing this now? Sounds simple when you say it like that. But it meant we worked as a team, that um, those people with the molecular skills would listen to what we had to say and we had the, the field experience, the lab experience to work with these live organisms. And so by doing that, you've got a really powerful team of people who can, who can make those changes. And before you know it, you, you have a whole suite of assays that when you want to know what disease is attacking your plant, Nowadays, um, there's a whole suite of tests that you can run and identify what's there. Prior to that, what we had to do, and we still do it, but what we had to do is get the plant and, and um, cut little bits of the, the disease part off, either put it into, onto an agar plate or some other system where it would grow, 
and then you would peer at it down a microscope and try and measure the size of the spores and the colour of the spores and the shape and try and work out whether or not you knew what you were looking at. And, um, and what's been interesting over the years, you know, this is a worldwide thing, is that the taxonomy has changed dramatically because the molecular um, understanding of these different diseases is showing that perhaps our taxonomy based on microscopy work has not been correct and we've had to shift things around a lot and understand that one pathogen is actually a cousin to something else and we didn't realise they were even related. So the, the molecular works had a huge impact on everything in that area. The other part which I've only really started to learn more about over the last little while has been around biologicals and actually the seed treatments going on, especially pulses. It yeah. Was this an area which has been around for quite some time in an area that you were working in as well? We didn't know. I didn't really do much work in that space at all. I mean, I think there's been a reasonable amount of understanding that biologicals are out there, that there is um, within nature, there is this balance of different organisms sort of working together or one sort of competing with another and trying to get things in balance. Um, and certainly there's um, some good stuff that's been working in that space. But most of my work has been, as I described before, either with chemicals that completely knock out a pathogen or looking at resistance genes or working within cropping systems themselves to control the pathogens. So I haven't done a lot in that space, but as we move more into sustainable farming, I can see that that is getting bigger and will start to form a more um, important role. I think the challenge for growers is going to be just how they're going to get that balance right and how effective some of the biologicals, because growers are used to using chemicals which can completely knock out a pathogen. Um, biological may not have that complete eradication that, that the chemicals can do. So this is sort of balancing act that's going to have to come forward. Mm, it's definitely an interesting space to, to mm. watch. In, in terms of maybe a comparison, the advances in technology or advances in how growers are growing, what do you think's had probably the, a, a bigger impact or even just your take on kind of, I guess we've touched on a little bit of the, the science side, but actually in terms of what have you seen change in the way that growers are growing their crops? Yeah, so I think really what's happened is a huge amount of pulse crops that are being grown in the system. And this is a really uh, big thing that's happened. Like when we go back decades, the only pulse crop really that was being grown was field peas and then there were some, some pulse pastures going in because there used to be that sort of pasture cropping phase. And then as the pastures were dropped out, um, they, they farmers realised they needed something in their system. Now they're growing wheat and barley or perhaps mostly wheat. They needed something in their system to um, firstly improve the nitrogen, the, you know, the fertility status of the soil, but also to have a break in terms of root disease. Because if you're just growing wheat on wheat on wheat, then what you're doing is, amongst other things, is increasing the amount of wheat diseases sitting in the soil. And so by growing a pulse crop, they give the soil a break from, from the wheat and so um, some of those diseases then will start to drop away again. So that was the initial um, 
status of pulse crops. They were seen as a break crop to help the wheat in subsequent years. And then as those pulse crops have, um, you know, the plant breeders have been working really hard on those and they've developed varieties that are much more suited to the southern Australian cropping system. We've also got chemicals that, you know, um, will control the weeds and we've got far better understanding of cropping systems that um, suit the pulse crops. And so what we've seen is this change from you put pulses in to help your wheat the, the idea nowadays is a pulse crop is a cash crop. You grow it for the sake of the cash that it's bringing into the system. And I think the big one in South Australia has certainly been lentils. Um, growers here have, have certainly been growing, um, as well as lentils, faba beans and chickpeas. Now, the chickpeas sort of fell out of the system for a number of reasons, but one of them being the disease Ascochyta blight, which absolutely decimates chickpeas. We've seen um, a few epidemics of that across the southern region of, of, of Australia. And so growers here are less entranced with, with chickpeas, and we don't see so many of them. But the lentil crop is just expanding everywhere across the South Australian system. Um, York Peninsula, it's, I think it's almost outpacing the wheat crop. There's more lentils than wheat. And um, it's very much a, a major part of the system on York Peninsula. But we're now starting to see lentils being grown down the southeast where they haven't traditionally been grown. They're also being grown on Air Peninsula and including some of the sort of drier areas. And we're looking at the, the upper north systems um, some of the drier regions, and they're trialling lentils up there. So there's part of the work that SAGAT is doing is funding um, the, the breeding programs to look at developing lentil types for those sandy soils and drier areas. And, and it's really starting to take off. And you can see that lentils are an incredibly important component of the cropping systems here in South Australia. Well, it's really exciting, isn't it? It really is. And I think the other, the other part that we see is the farmers actually, um, the lessons they learn in how to grow these things, because I've seen them early on in the late 1990s when um, they were, the lentil crops were hammered with disease because the sowing time might have been too early, which meant that the crop got all heavy and lanky. And then in a season like we're having now with lots of spring rain, the lentil crop was just absolutely sodden with Botrytis grey mould disease. And so that was a major drawback for the crop at that time. The other disease that we were seeing a lot of was Ascochyta blight in lentils. So both of those were major challenges to the crop early on. We've got to the stage now where we have quite a number of varieties that are resistant to Ascochyta blight. We have some that are also resistant to Botrytis grey mould. But the other part of the equation is the growers have, are exceptionally skilled at growing these crops. They, they know when to put them in so that they get their canopy closure at the right time. They've got fungicide strategies that they know what they've got to do to keep those, those diseases under control. And the whole quality product that they're producing has got really good markets. So the industry has come an enormous way in the last 20-odd years. 
and, and that's showing in terms of just how much it's expanding and where whereabouts across South Australia that this crop's being grown. It sounds like a little bit of a watch this space, Jenny, because it sounds like it's going from strength to strength and hasn't quite seen the ceiling uh, quite possibly yet. I, I totally agree. I think it's still got places to go. I think it's still expanding and the markets are expanding as well and opportunities are there. So I think, yeah, definitely a lot more to happen in this space. Now, shifting slightly on the on the research side, so you've, you've authored and co-authored 50 different bits of research different papers it's firstly that's just extraordinary um is there is there a key piece of work which you look at now and and hang your hat on as one that you're really fond of uh, and hold above others or, or what have been some of those key bits of work that's really interesting that you use you know the fond of because i think it is quite different what what as a researcher that you're fond of versus what's had an impact and so i think they are quite different questions and some of the work that um, I'm really quite proud of is the Ascochyta in lentils. We've had um, a series of, of um, issues where the resistance that was put into varieties started to fail. And this was, and we tracked it through, I say we as in the team that I was working with, um, we tracked through what was going on. It really came down to the intensity of lentils being grown in particular areas. And then if you've got one variety that was being grown, which is what was happening at the time, the intensive pressure that puts on a pathogen, if, it's, if your crop is resistant and your pathogen keeps dropping spores onto the crop, then at some point you're going to have a mutation in the pathogen so that it is able to infect that resistant variety. And so once it started infecting that resistant variety, it's going to multiply on it. And so before you know it, that um, mutated type of pathogen has then spread across to all the other crops and suddenly your resistance is no longer effective. We saw that happen twice in the lentil cropping areas. And so we did a lot of work following that through. We did a lot of screening and we were able to actually identify some of the genes that, that were associated with that, um, that change that we saw and link it back to the genes sitting in the crop as well. So that, that was a very um, satisfying amount of work to do, I think, in just how many years we were working on it and then being able to pull it together and understand what was going on. Um, so that was one bit that I thought was, was really good. Another area that I have published in and done quite a lot of work is with the disease black spot of field pea. And that's what I focus my PhD on as well. Um, and there are a couple of pieces in that, that that I was, as you say, fond of and quite proud of. And one was we... Black spot is not one fungus. It's, it's caused by four different fungi attacking the pea plant. And one of these fungi that we were looking at, it didn't make sense looking at it um, in the lab. It had a particular name and I didn't believe that was the correct name. So this comes back to what we were talking about earlier with the molecular work. 
that by taking this to the molecular lab, getting people to do sequencing, to understand what was going on, we were firstly able to identify that it had been misnamed and then linking into international laboratories um, and getting descriptions of what was going on, we were actually able to identify that this was a new fungus that had not been described before. So um, publishing a paper about a newly um, identified species of any sort for a scientist is, um, you know, quite a coup. And so that was, that was something that um, I thought was, you know, as you say, I was... Um, sort of fond of and, and proud of doing. So, so very different areas, but um, both those pieces, I think, are what I would see as something that I really put up there as well worth doing. Absolutely. And I had a huge impact in just on, on kind of your work directly, but also the whole industry more broadly. Absolutely, because then you're understanding what's actually going on because um, the SADI group with the molecular testing are setting up um, soil tests for predicting what diseases are sitting in the soil. And if you've got the wrong pathogen there, then you're missing the boat. So, so by identifying the correct pathogen, well, they were able then to include that in their suite of assays and give more information to growers about what's actually going on. I'm wanting to shift in terms of mentors, but then also on you as a leader, because I think you've worked with uh, over, over your career plenty of staff, but you're actually SARDI's principal research scientist in pathology, overseeing six different laboratories and, and 20 staff. And I think at the beginning, you touched on just the influence that Dr. Sparrow had in mm -hmm. terms of you going and studying agriculture science and ultimately ending up down this route. But what type of leader? And mentor did you try and be to the staff that were within your team? Yeah. Um, an open-door policy, I think, is, is something that's incredibly important. Um, so that, you know, what I discovered once you start um, supervising people or, or leading people is that everybody has a crisis. It doesn't matter who they are. Everybody is dealing with something in their lives. It might be personal. It might be something to do with work. But you've got to make time to listen and understand where they're coming from because you get people re reacting to situations sometimes in a way you think, well, that was uncalled for or, or perhaps they are, they're coming across stressed and you think, well, why is this going on? And having that open-door policy, listening to people and trying to work it out and really being a sounding board, I guess, is something that, that I found really, really important. So that that's sort of more on the... Um, the management side of thing, managing staff. In terms of science, what I tried to do was um, always get people to ask the question, what am I actually trying to achieve here? Now, what is my question in science? What is my hypothesis? Because sometimes I think it's easy to forget and you get caught up in science, you get chasing in the lab or the field, whatever you're doing with your research. You can get caught up in the latest thing or get distracted by something else. And you really have to come back to what is my hypothesis? And therefore, that's how you set up your experiments and your trials around a very specific hypothesis and, and keep thinking about the work you're doing in that very scientific fashion. Because if you can get an answer, 
out of one question, you can take that out to industry and then you can add the next question in. If you go in there going this, 10 questions here I have to answer and you try and put them all into one experiment, you're going to get nowhere. But it's about building brick by brick, building the information and um, being able to come out with something that is of use to industry. I love how passionate you are still about it, Jenny. And how difficult was it to make the decision to retire? Um, It was... I sort of threw it around for a while. I mean, I was still very, very active, obviously, in the research and and, and dealing with industry. Um, I think having the Saget role helped me make that decision. I don't think I could have just walked away with nothing. So, so when I left Saadi at the end of last year, I knew I had the Saget role to be engaged with people that I've always worked with for the last 20 or 30 years. I was also finishing off a number of scientific papers. Um, One, I was the main author and a couple of others I'm co-author on. Um, I'm also still um, co-supervising a PhD student uh, at the Adelaide University. So there was still a whole series of things that were ongoing. And so being able to go, yeah, I've still got all this stuff, I'm still going to be engaged with the research community and with the farming community, it was probably um, not that hard in the end to make that decision, yeah. But without those things, I don't think I could have done it, yeah. Do you ever think you'll move away from the the research side completely? Because as you said earlier, retired in terms of the inverted commas because you sound just as busy as anyone else uh, still. So do you see yourself taking a yeah, a real backseat on the research side? Um, I'm not physically engaged personally in the research anymore other than finishing off those things that I was just talking about. So my role now with SAGET is more in that um, I'm on the other side of the funding body situation where, you know, SAGET's giving out the money. I used to be one of the people putting my hand up saying, please give me money. So to be on the other side of that coin is a little bit different. Um, And in terms of, so I'm not driving the research. I'm not the one setting up the trials. But in my role, um, it's more that mentorship role of, making sure that people are engaging in their research plans in a very scientific manner. And so in that sense, probably, yeah, I will be engaged in that way for, for some time to come. That's really exciting. Mm. Now, Jenny, we've got the fast five, which are a bunch of questions which we're asking everyone as part of this. So it doesn't require a huge amount of deep thought, uh, but we'll be very excited to hear your answers from it. Are you ready? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What's your favourite grain-based dish? Hummus. Who would be three people you'd invite around for the hummus? (laughs) Oh, wow. I have no idea. (laughs) That's a really hard question. Um, Gosh, I'm completely blank. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) We could come back to that one. I'll come back to that one. Yeah. Um, What was your first job? Very first job, proper yeah. job, was the assistant to the farmer bean breeder. I mean, if you're talking about casual jobs, 
I, when I was at uni, I did some work counting votes for the Electoral Commission and I did some work um, helping out in a vegetable farm. So, you know, doing all the seedling transfers and all that sort of stuff. So I did some casual work like that as well. Well, there you go. Mm. What's something on your bucket list? Well, I love travelling. I have done quite a bit of travelling, but um, certainly more of that. And I think getting to, I really want to get more into Scotland, England and Wales. I mean, that is that is my history and where my families have all come from. And I'd really love to spend a lot more time in that space. Oh, fingers crossed you can get over there soon. Now, what's a question you'd like us to ask a future guest on this series? Yeah. where is GRDC heading with their funding programs? <laughs> and in terms of the three people you'd invite around for your hummus dish? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, one of them is my very best friend who, who did the terrible thing age 22 and moved to England, and I've never forgiven her for it. <laughs> she, would, she would have to be guest number one. Um. After that, um, let me think. Yeah, this is a really hard one. Um, Obama, I think, would be a really interesting person to have around because I just think he tried so hard to sort the world out and basically didn't achieve anything. But I think he's somebody that really thinks really well. Um, Yeah, who else? I don't know. Two guests it is. Your very yeah. best friend in the world and yeah. Barack Obama. <laughs> yeah, why not? That'll do, I think. <laughs> Fantastic, Jenny. Well, thank you so much for joining us as part of this right. chat. I think it's been unreal hearing your journey and story um, through it. And um, I think the industry is very lucky to have had you involved and to see you continue to be involved as well. Thank you very much. I do appreciate it. Actually, I've just thought of my third guest. Yes. Norman Borlaug. Who you you know him, yeah, and you know of him, yes. So he um, was the guy that basically um, created the green revolution. So you know the the dwarfed rice, etc. So that when the world thought that with the population explosion, we were going to go into starvation, it was his work that uh, actually prevented that happening and increased world production of food enormously so yeah he was a very important man would be fascinating to sit down with it would indeed thanks for joining us for the grdc in conversation podcast this series is a grdc investment that's sharing the stories of the people who are living and breathing the aussie grains industry make sure you check out some of our other conversations and hit follow on your favorite podcast app to never miss an episode